that he was, who was Herbert Armstrong, and he's referred to that several times since in this feast. But the question that was asked of me is, who are Joshua and Zerubbabel? And I think it's a question that follows. I began this feast with a focus on peace and what it takes to have peace, that the world and the church do not know peace, the church as a whole. And then I gave the second, ser- the second sermon showing what you and I must do to find the paths of peace, the attitudes we must develop, the procedures we must take, the humility that is required to get along with one another. So today I want to talk about the mechanics of how this will happen. John is referring to Ephesians 4 and the attendant scriptures about, again, somewhat the attitudes and the approach we must take. But what about the mechanics of it? How is it all going to develop, in other words, that the church is rebuilt? It has very much to do with Joshua and Zerubbabel and who they are. Now, I had a lady that I've known for many, many years recently ask me if I thought they were the two witnesses. And I said, of course. She said, nobody believes that. And I was just incredulous. I, I thought, I thought everyone knew that. I thought that was so clear in the scriptures that anyone would know that by now. But she, talking of the greater church of God, not of our group there where she was that day, that nobody understands or believes that. I I, I, I was almost speechless. We shall see today that it will be a critical understanding or a critical lack of understanding and a very high-priced lack of understanding if people do not begin to understand who they are and what they mean to the end-time church and that Joshua and Zerubbabel are indeed the two witnesses. Now that I've told you the end of the story, I guess we can quit and go home. But perhaps we shouldn't. Perhaps now I should take you through and show you why I think this. To see the scriptures about it and how it's tied together and what it means. Now let's examine, first of all, Joshua and Zerubbabel before we get any deeper into the story. Uh, Go back to the book of Haggai, if you will. Haggai 1. You only have two choices there, Haggai 1 or 2, so it isn't very far from one to the other. Very short book, but a very powerful book with an awful lot of message in it. All right, what is the job? What is the ultimate conclusion here as well? What are Joshua and Zerubbabel commissioned to do? Well, first of all, we find an unbelieving church in chapter 1 and verse 2. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. So there will be a lack of belief, there will be a lack of faith, there will be a lack of understanding of a job that is to be done. People will say, nah. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet. And there is, first of all here, some correction for us. Is it time for you to dwell in your sealed houses or paneled places, your fine homes, and this house lie waste? Is it time to be going on with our material lives and living comfortably in our homes and ignoring 
God's home. Now, therefore, there's that therefore John was talking about. Consider your ways. You've sown much. You've put a lot of energy into becoming wealthy or having a good living on this earth. And bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe, but there is none warm. In other words, it's empty. What we are doing seems to have no good consequence. Thus says the Lord of hosts again, if you're in this condition, either physically and or spiritually, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build a house. What is wood? Wood is pieces of trees. Churches, and symbolically in the Bible, are trees. That's one analogy about churches. Now, when a tree is standing, it's not wood, is it? It's tree. When you cut it down, it becomes dead, and you cut it up into lumber or firewood, and it becomes wood, pieces of wood. So God has told us in many other scriptures, which I don't have time to go into now, but we've covered them before, that he is going to cut down the vineyards, he is going to cut down the trees, he's going to destroy the spiritual houses. All these analogies indicate that the church is going to be knocked down. The temple, not one stone, and so on. Many analogies show that. So, he says, gather up the pieces of the churches, the remnant, in other words, and build the house. And I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and lo, it came to little, and when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why? Because of my house that is waste, and you run every man to his own house. Now, we already saw in the sermonette that he is going to choose one daughter of Zion, one church, and he's going to work through it. So we have all these spiritual houses out here, and people are running from one to the other. But he says, my house must be built. Therefore, it would seem to me we have to find that house. And we have to work in it. Now you've got a challenge already. Don't know where we're going to find it or when, but we need to be looking for it. I called for a drought. Well, we've had spiritual famine. I'm not going to go into this too deeply because I will be there in a couple, three months now in my series on the Minor Prophets, and I don't want to give all of it away. But on the other hand, this is, uh, is okay. And, and to, dis- to answer this particular question, we have to go here. All right. Now, after the drought was there, here's your time setting. After the drought was there in verse 11, verse 12, then, in the midst of the drought of the Word, the famine that we are in today, when we have no counselor, no king, and no leader, and no man among all the sons that she has produced, as Isaiah 51 says, is here to lead us. Then, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the people did fear before the Lord at the end of the verse. God says, I am with you, verse 13. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, verse 14, and the people, and the end of it, the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts their God. So God is going to stir up leaders, too, and remnant, the people, and they will work together to build a house of God.
Now some will say the time is not yet. We have to wait until the leaders get here. We have to wait perhaps until miracles and signs and wonders begin to happen. Then we'll know where the leaders are. That is very, very dangerous thinking. And I'll prove it to you. We are not looking for the messengers. We are looking for the message. The message is far more important than the messengers. If the messengers were far more important, then God would have to have had to have preserved alive until today Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, Paul, Peter, James, John, so that we would know where the messengers were. Bear that in mind as we go through this subject. It is not the messengers, but the message that is important. Now, let's skip on down. Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 4 I want now. O Joshua, son of Josedek, uh, and Zerubbabel before that, be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, which is Worldwide Church of God today, they've gone right back into Egypt, false doctrine. So we came out of that falseness. We came out of the captivity of false doctrine in Worldwide Church of God. So my spirit remains among you, fear you not. And this is not talking just to the physical people of Israel who came out of the literal Egypt, because verse 6 gives us the timing. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. So the setting is right at the end. Verse 8, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The world thinks the silver and the gold is theirs, and the stock market is theirs, and frankly, they can have it. But God says he has the true gold. He has the true silver. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place will I give peace, unity, harmony, where they will see together, consider together, hear together, and be together. Here is how it will happen. Now, how do we know when this is? Look back to chapter 2 and verse 2. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, while it repeats those two again, and to the residue of the people. How much? How many people is the residue of the church? You know what residue is? It's that which you wipe out of the bottom. That's the end time church. Speak to the residue of the people, saying, Who is left among you? Now that's speaking of you and me, isn't it? Now I don't know that we're a part of that righteous remnant. This is yet to be established by God. Who is who? I mean, that is who will be drawn and who will respond. But I'm saying in general, that which came out of worldwide and is the remnant of that is what I'm, is what I'm addressing here. Who is left among you that came out of worldwide, in other words? 
that saw this house in her first glory. And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? So the glory of the latter temple, which he goes on to describe, is going to be so much greater than worldwide was that the comparison will be as comparison will be as nothing. Worldwide will be nothing compared to the comparison of what God is going to build in the latter temple. Now that precludes the former temple having been Herod's temple or Solomon's temple. Because he's talking about the lifetime of people who saw worldwide in its greatest glory, who are still alive when the new temple is completed, and they have the capacity in their lifetime to have viewed both. Now I ask you, how old are those who saw worldwide in its greatest glory in the 50s and 60s? And we're talking about a temple that's not yet rebuilt, that they have to compare. If they were adults in the 50s and 60s, they're getting up there pretty old now. And this thing has to be done, finished, completed, so it can be compared by the time the oldest members are dead or changed. So the former and latter temple have to be here at the end time. So the job today, whether people believe it or not, is to build a temple, not preach the gospel to the world. I don't see a message in here about preaching the gospel to the world, do you? Somebody on the back row see it here? I, I, I can't find it. find it. I find it in the last verse of Haggai. After he has built the church, in that day, the time of the day of the Lord, says the Lord of hosts, Will I take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and I will make you as a signet, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. Signet, a banner, a witness against the world, as we'll see from other scriptures. You see, it's critical to recognize that the church has to be rebuilt before the two witnesses begin to preach to the world. Because if we don't see that, and we're waiting for two people to stand up and do great signs and miracles and wonders, we'll miss the building of the church. We'll miss being a part of it. If you don't understand the job to be done, not, you'll miss out. It's scary. Now, let's tie some things together here. Let's go to Zechariah 3 and read about these two men. I, I don't want to take too long here in, in description. We'll get to it again very shortly in the series I'm doing and go through it in detail. But uh, chapter 3 introduces Joshua, and his office will be that of high priest. The Lord said, uh, and, and uh, Satan resisted him, and he is called a brand plucked out of the fire. Of course, that Amos 4.8 says we are all brands plucked out of the fire, but he specifically is one. Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And you know the story, I'm sure about how his iniquity would pass and how he would be given clean clothes, in other words, be forgiven of the sins in his life. He represents a filthy people. Just as Aaron had to be cleansed before he could represent the people before God, Joshua is in that same position as high priest who had to be cleansed 
of a filthy life and presented as the high priest of a filthy people. And through him and through Christ, who also became filthy with our sins. He had never sinned himself personally, but he became filthy with our sins as our high priest. And he had to be cleansed. So the types here of Christ become very close in all these things. Because Christ did it all. Well, these are just an enactment or a symbolism or a, uh, a repeat in some ways of what Christ did. An enactment again on the stage of the world and of the church. So then he charges Joshua to walk cleanly from there then on. And I think that there should be a lot of encouragement here for you and for me. In that, someone who was filthy and a brand plucked out of the fire that was about to be burned up can be brought out and saved through the sacrifice of Christ and made clean. But this is good news for you and for me. Then he goes down in chapter 4. The angel talked with him again, and he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I have looked, and behold, a candlestick all of gold with a bowl upon the top of it, and his seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof. Now you can go back to Revelation 1, and you see the symbology there of the candlesticks and so on, uh, just before he begins to talk to the seven churches, and two olive trees by it, one upon the right side of the bowl and the other upon the left. Now, there's a commission given. Uh, verse 6, Then he answered and spoke to me, saying, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So, what he is commissioning Joshua and Zerubbabel to do, specifically Zerubbabel is the leader here, is to feed all seven churches. But it's not going to be the kind of man who is a great leader. It is going to be someone who needs the might, the power, and the Spirit of God, not his own. Charisma won't get it. It takes the Spirit of God. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth a headstone thereof with shoutings, crying grace, grace to it. You see, Christ is going to raise the valleys and lower the mountains. Every valley shall be exalted, every hill made low, and so on. But Zerubbabel is a direct type of Christ. And the mountains and the governments of this world are going to be flattened before the two witnesses, and we'll see before the story ends. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, speaking of the church. His hands also shall finish it, and they shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. It's not Herbert Armstrong, because he did not finish the latter temple. He built the former temple. And because of lack of devotion and sin, it is being knocked down around us. Who has despised the day of small things? God is going to start the remnant church, the latter temple, small. For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet, that is, that which measures. Uh, if you're a carpenter, a plumb line is a string with a weight on the bottom that measures verticality. Uprightness, if you will. Righteousness and holiness. So Zerubbabel, and we'll see this a little later on, is commissioned to measure the uprightness of the church. Verse 11, Then I answered Then answered I and said to him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? 
And I answered again and said to him, What be these two olive branches which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? They deliver oil to the church. And he answered me and said, Know you not what these be? And I said, No, I don't have a clue. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, in case we missed the message, let's go back to Revelation 11. Revelation 11. These are the two olive trees. Now let's pick it up here in verse 1. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod. Rod is going to become important here in a little bit. And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar in them that worship therein. Now, who's he talking to? Well, the angel is talking to the Apostle John, who was the head of the church at that point. He was the last remaining apostle alive. So, by extrapolation, he's speaking to the head of the church. The physical head, not Christ. This is Christ speaking, or the angel speaking for Christ. But here is, let's go back to verse 11 of chapter 10. He said to me, you must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. What has the end time church done? So far, Herbert Armstrong came along in the former temple of the end time and preached to kings and uh, peoples and nations and tongues and so on. So he said, it isn't over. The church must do this again. And then he introduces, or begins to introduce, how it will be done again. But what does he do? He gives a rod, a measuring line. We all already saw the plummet, which measures verticality. Now we have a measuring line to determine the size of the church. And to measure the altar. That is, those who stand at the altar of the ministry. So, whoever the commission is to here is to measure both the altar and those that worship therein. The whole church, the ministry and the people, the shepherds and the sheep. But the court which is without the temple, live out and measure it not. For it is given to the Gentiles in the holy city, and they shall tread underfoot forty-two months. The commission given here is to be measuring and checking the plumbness of the temple, the building, and the ministry of it, and to forget about the Gentiles for the time being. Now, what does that tell you? Think. Think! I'll tell you what it tells me. It tells me the emphasis should be on the church and the ministry right now and getting it right, not worrying about the Gentiles out there in the world and preaching the gospel to them. Here we have direct instruction of what is to be done first. Now there's another important point to to make here in verse 3. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred threescore days clothed in sackcloth. Now, what is significant here? Actually, there are several things. One is, the church comes first. Secondly, there will not be given great power while the church is being measured and checked. It is only afterward that he then gives power 
And Joshua and Zerubbabel become then two witnesses against the world. They aren't the two witnesses until they begin to witness. Now, you might be chosen for a jury, but you're not a jury until jury convenes. You're candidates for a jury. These men are not the two witnesses until that witness begins in power. But if you're sitting around waiting for the power to be given and signs and wonders to be done, you've missed the building and the measuring and the verticality checking of the church. And that could be critical. Because when those miracles and signs start, the church has just gone to a place of safety, and you're sitting there still waiting for miracles. And you might identify where God is working too late. Oh, I see! As your head goes rolling down the road right afterwards. The church goes to the place of safety for three and a half years, and it apparently is the same three and a half years that the two witnesses preach to the world. So their job is first to give oil to the church. Now let's prove who they are. Now we were talking about Zerubbabel and Joshua, weren't we, in Haggai and Zechariah. Okay? Verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. Zechariah put it the whole earth. Now, if you look in a concordance, you won't find the two olive trees referred to but once. Well, twice. The one we read in Zechariah and the one we are now reading in Revelation. So when he says, these are those two, it can only refer, as an antecedent, back to the only time in God's word that they had been mentioned before. And that's Zechariah 4. So he's saying the two witnesses are Joshua and Zerubbabel. Again, point set match. How do you argue with that? It says it in black and white in so many words. How can the church not see this? That's why it just blew my mind. Nobody believes this, she said. She said, you taught me this in Great Falls, Montana in the late 70s. I said, yeah, I thought everybody understood it. But apparently not. Because she visits lots of churches, United and Global and Philadelphia, her husband's in Philadelphia and here and there. And she said, people don't understand this. Okay. I guess it's time to preach about it. (laughs) Because I do feel it is a very critical issue to understand what God is going to do. Now, we've mentioned plumb line. We've mentioned uh, measuring the altar. Let's go back to Amos and follow up a little bit on that particular thought. Amos 7, I want. I went over this recently in the sermon on Amos, but uh, let's review this particular scripture in this context. Uh, Chapter 7, and the end of verse 2. By whom, or who, in Jacob shall stand? For he is small. The church is diminished. It's getting small. Who is going to stand? Verse 5, by whom shall Jacob arise? Or as the margin says again, uh, who in Jacob shall stand? And my King James margin is an alternative translation there. Who's going to stand up? 
Where is this message going to come from? For Jacob is small. Verse 7, Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord stood upon a wall made by a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, well, I see a plumb line, obviously. Then said the Lord, Behold, I will set a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. That is, in the middle of the church, the whole church. I will not again pass by them anymore. I'm going to measure them. Every time you find a plumb line in the Bible, and there are very few, this is the context. It's talking about the leadership that will arise in the church. Let's go to Isaiah 28. Let's look at all of these quickly. Isaiah 28. Here he talks about the residue of his people in verse 5. He talks about the prophets that err in verse 7. They're out of the way. How many times have we heard the way of God or the church of God or the or Christianity called the way? Paul uses it. Herbert Armstrong used it all the time. We talk about the way of God, the way of life. They're out of the way. They're strong drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of vomit and filthiness so that there's no place clean. So it's describing the church today. Okay? Now verse 16. Therefore, there's your therefore again. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious corner, a sure foundation, he that believes shall not make haste. Judgment will I lay to the line, and righteousness to the plummet, so the measuring line and the plummet both here, and the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the water shall overflow the hiding place. So God is going to restore true doctrine in the church. He's going to take away the refuge of lies that the Dukat bunch gave us. Gang, maybe I should say. And the true doctrine, the good waters, the words of God, will overflow the hiding place. What's the hiding place? The place of safety, more than likely. So this is talking about the time when he's going to rebuild the church. Now we know that Christ, of course, is the chief cornerstone. But Zerubbabel, who will be given the plumb line, is a direct type of Christ. So the leader of the two witnesses then uh, is here as a representative of Christ to do the measuring for Christ. We've already seen that in Zechariah 4.10. I won't turn there. We will look at one more in Zechariah 2. Zechariah 2. I lifted up my eyes again, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then said I, Where do you go? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is the breadth thereof and what is the length thereof. What is left of the church, in other words? exact same language we found in Revelation 11, 1 and 2 is used here about Joshua and Zerubbabel who will be introduced in the next chapter, or the next two chapters. So when you find a plumb line stretched on the end time church, uh, it is the, the work of those two that are doing it. Isaiah 52. Let's go back there just a moment. Isaiah 52. Now, in the sermonette, I referred to, uh, in the Song of Solomon, uh, the, the shoes shod of the bride, uh, taking the message, the gospel of God, I referred obliquely to this one. But let's see it here in Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him 
the leader that brings good tidings, that publishes peace, all right? I told you, look for a message, not a messenger. One who publishes peace, that brings good tidings of good, that publishes salvation, shows how to be saved, that says to Zion, thy God reigns, or God is the ruler of the entire universe. Then it changes to two. It goes from one to two. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice, with the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye when? When the Lord shall bring back Zion. That is, when this thing turns around and blessings begin to come, the two will then understand their position, their job together. They may not up until that point. But once God be, stops this scattering, or the, the, the new temple begins in the midst of the scattering, and out of the depths of the scattering, at some point they're going to recognize a job. They're going to have the same message, singing together. Break forth into joy, sing together, you waste places of the church. For the Lord has comforted his people, he has redeemed the church. Put it back together. The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Then he gives us instruction about departing from anything that is unclean, and so on and so forth. We've examined those before, so I won't waste time here. It's not a waste, but I mean I have other things to say. <laughs> I just want to make the point here that the feet have to be shod with the gospel of peace, salvation, and the rulership of God. There's a message we are looking for. Now, Revelation 11 talks about the rod. I mentioned that in passing a while ago. Let's examine a few on that, because it is also in the context of the two witnesses. Ezekiel 19. Ezekiel 19. A little bit different section here, uh, examining another word that is in there. Ezekiel 19, and now, uh, let's see. Well, let's pick it up in verse 10. Your mother is like a vine in your blood, planted by the waters. She was fruitful and full of branches by reason of many waters. The church of God had the truth of God, had the words of God. She had strong rods for the scepters of them that bear rule. There was strength in the ministry of the worldwide church of God for a lot of years. And her stature was exalted among the thick branches, and she appeared in her height with the multitude of her branches. A spreading vine, as Ezekiel 17 points out, that I, I covered in a sermon not long ago, that was not the kind of vine that God wanted, and therefore he tore it down, as he says in Isaiah 5, and he will pluck at the top of a cedar and rebuild a young church. She was plucked up in fury. She was cast down to the ground, and the east wind dried up her fruit. Her strong rods were broken and withered. The fire consumed them. Did the evangelists become consumed and withered? You bet they did. And now, hearkening back to Isaiah 41, she is planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty ground. And fire has gone out of a rod of her branches, which has devoured her fruit, so that she has no strong rod to be a scepter to rule. This is a lamentation and shall be for a lamentation. So he describes the church now without a rod. That means that any rod that is visible is not necessarily the rod of God. No rod. 
Now let's go to Ezekiel 20. Verse 37. And I will cause you to pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant, and I will purge out from among you the rebels, and then the transgress against me. God is purging the church, and ultimately he's going to use the rod that he mentions in Revelation 11 in terms of measuring and checking the church and the plummet, again, to check up rightness. And if we do not reach the level of righteousness and holiness that God expects of us, we will be purged out. The rod really is the word of God. But that rod is held in the hand of those two men who will give us doctrine to measure up to. Micah 6, verse 9. Micah 6, verse 9. Alright, well let's let's pick it up in verse eight actually. He has showed me he has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly? In other words, walk by the laws of God, the ways of God, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now those are the elements of peace, of unity and harmony. The Lord's voice cries to the city. We are the city of Zion, Jerusalem, the temple of God, Hebrews twelve, twenty two through twenty three. And the man of wisdom shall see your name. They'll see God's name in the church that God is going to use. Hear you the rod. And who has appointed it? We need to find the message and the rod. Christ appoints it. But who is it? Where is it? That's the question. All right, I already said that Zerubbabel has made a signet to the nations in the very last verse of Haggai. Now that leads us to another type. We'll, we'll sort of change direction here for a little while. We've seen Joshua and Zerubbabel in a function as builders of the latter temple as their first and primary job. Which is more important? Getting the church ready as the bride of Christ or witnessing to the world? I mean, I mean, obviously it should be. Revelation 19 through 21. He is coming for his bride. That takes precedence over everything. It's having a bride prepared. The witness to the world, he said, leave them in the outer court for the time being. Until the bride is ready. All right, let's look at another type. Moses and Elijah are two names that Christ links together in a prophetic sense. Why not Abraham and David? Why not Jacob and Noah? Why Moses and Elijah? Why are they linked? And we'll see that they are. Let's go to Matthew 17. Matthew 17. This is the story of the transfiguration where he took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain and was transfigured. And in this vision, it says it's a vision, Moses and Elijah appeared talking with him. Why Moses and Elijah? Why not somebody else? Well, when, he saw, when Peter saw Moses and Elijah, he thought it must be the Feast of Tabernacles, so he said, let's make booths. He knew that Moses and Elijah would 
not be resurrected until Christ returned at the beginning of the millennium. So in the vision, Peter sees these Moses and Elijah. I don't know how he knew who they were because he'd never seen them before. But perhaps they had name tags like we had at the Feast of Years, you know, Moses and Elijah, or whatever. But at, at any rate, he recognized them for who they were. And he said, well, let's build some booths. It must be time for the Feast of Tabernacles. I'm in the world tomorrow. Wrong, it was just a vision. But the message in this vision is found in verse 5, the end of the verse, where God said, this is my... My beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, hear you him. That was the purpose of the transfiguration. But when Moses and Elijah appear at the end, or that is, types of Moses and Elijah, it is not they who are important. It is the message of Jesus Christ to his church. It is what Christ says here that's important. In other words, it is the message, not the messengers, that we need to listen to. Revelation was a vision or a, yeah, a vision to John of the message of Jesus Christ. John the Apostle was not that important in the overall sense. All he did was relate the message of Jesus Christ. So, they are linked together here for a very good reason. Malachi 4. Just back one book, Malachi 4. The day comes, here's the setting, when the wicked will burn as the oven and the proud will disappear, and so on and so forth. But to you that fear my name, chapter verse 2, shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. Jesus Christ is going to move to do some things. Who is he going to use? And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in that day that I shall do this, says the Lord of hosts. So he says, during the day of the Lord, at the beginning of the millennium, is the setting here when Jesus Christ begins to do his work, his great work. And what is the parting shot for us in this context? Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Same message the Apostle John gave in 1 John 1, 2, and 3. Keep the commandments of God. But here he uses Moses. Then he introduces another figure. Moses first. Moses was a far more powerful figure in the Bible with a lot more ink than was Elijah. Verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Before. So he, he describes the, the day of the Lord that this is imminent when this happens. But he says, Before it happens, I will send Elijah the prophet. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children of the children, heart of the children of the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. We won't go into that. I want to save that particular explanation uh, until the end of the series on the minor prophets. But the point is, they are linked together here as leaders at the end. We are to follow the law of Moses as propounded by the One, and we're to listen to the prophecies of Elijah and what he does to the relationships, as we'll see in that sermon, uh, together. So they are linked together here inexorably in Matthew 17 and Malachi 4. Now, I want to throw another link in here. This one we'll find in Luke 1. Luke 1. Again, look for a message. Here. Luke 1. 
and let's see, I want to go back here to John the Baptist in, in uh, verse 17. Well, let's go to 16 first. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. Turning people back to God was the job of John the Baptist before Christ came the first time. And turning people to God is the job that John the Baptist at the end has to do. In both cases, someone has to come to prepare the way for Christ. Verse 17, And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Making ready a people prepared for the Lord. Getting the bride ready is the biggest job of John the Baptist at the end. That is the final fulfillment. He links John the Baptist with Elijah here. We just read about Elijah, who would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. When? In the context of Malachi 4, right at the day of the Lord, just before, lest God come and smite the earth with a curse. So a day of darkness and gloominess. Not the first coming of Christ, but the second. Now I am very much aware that Christ said that John the Baptist, or John the Baptist was Elijah in another place. I meant to put that in here and go through it. But he does leave room in that particular chapter to show that, there, that John the Baptist had already come and the job is to prepare the church. Get the people ready for the Lord. Let's see some more about his message. Going on down to... Um, well, let's pick it up uh, in verse 69, because it introduces the person that I will give as the next link here. And has raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. What is going to happen to the church? Matthew 24, the love of many will wax cold, iniquity will abound, and we will be betrayed one to another, and some will die as a result of betrayal of our brothers in Christ. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. What did the worldwide church of God destroy? The holy covenant. The covenant we, we made with God for salvation. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham. So the covenant is very important here in the end time as part of the message. That he would grant to us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. Where is the church going to go? She is going to have wings of a great eagle to go to her place and be protected and serve him without fear. Now, what are the characteristics of this church? How should she be prepared? What does she have to do? In holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. So the message today is holiness and righteousness. That's the message we need to look for. And your child shall be called the prophet of the highest, and he's linked John the Baptist and Elijah, for you shall go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. 
to get the ways of the Lord reinstituted in the church. I haven't seen anything here about preaching the gospel to the world yet, have you? Verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation. Same thing we read in Isaiah 52, 7. To his people, by the remission of their sins, repentance and forgiveness, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high has visited us. God is going to show mercy on the latter temple as it is built, and even though we might still have warts, God is going to account his remnant church righteous. And I hope you and I are a part of it. Verse 79. To give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. How many people in the church of God today are sitting in the shadow of death with bad doctrine, wrong teaching, almost dying from lack of food and sustenance? To guide our feet into the way of peace. When will he bring peace? Where will he bring peace? Haggai 2.9 in the latter temple. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing to Israel. Now is there a link here or is there not? He links Joshua and Zerubbabel together with the two witnesses. Moses and Elijah doing an end-time work. The types are here. It even gives the kind of message that will be given. And the message is what is important. It doesn't matter, in one sense, who says it, as long as it's said, and as long as we can react to it. Let's notice one more type here. A lot of types come together here at the end time because the patterns of leadership, the patterns of prophecy, and so on, are reenacted over and over. Ezekiel 34. I don't think anybody here would say that Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34 are talking about the Methodists and Baptists because we've been hurt enough and abused enough that when we read about false shepherds here who feed themselves instead of the flocks and have not taken care of the disease or the sick, are bound up that which was broken, I'm in verse 4, or brought again that which was driven away, neither have you sought that which was lost, but with force and with cruelty have you ruled them. And they were scattered because there is no shepherd. Now we've already seen several verses which show that there is no leader, no overall shepherd right now. And they became meat to all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. Going back to Protestantism, going back to Catholicism and Buddhism, I don't know where all they're going. Going to nowhere, going to Egypt and Babylon. My, my sheep wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill. Yea, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth, and did not, none did search or seek after them. It's just like they're kind of out there, and nobody really cares about the flock of God. Why don't they care about the flock of God? Because they think they have a big job to do, maybe preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, which God said, leave alone in the honor court until later. So the sheep go unfed and untended. Now, we've already read a lot of scriptures about that. I just wanted to set the tone here. Now, let's go down to verse 23. 
And I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, even my servant David. He shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken it. I will make with them a covenant of peace. Here's what we saw in Haggai 2.9. He's going to give peace in the latter temple. And will cause the evil beasts to cease out of the land, and they shall dwell safely where? In the wilderness, and sleep in the woods, where he planted all seven churches, Isaiah 41, 18, and 19. In their place, in the wilderness, they flee to the mountains and wilderness, Matthew 24. And I will make them in the places round about my hill a blessing, and I will cause the shower to come down in a season. There shall be showers of blessings. Now this carries on into the millennium. I understand that. But we're talking first to the church, spiritual Israel, then to physical Israel. The church is going to her place, and she is going to be succored and fed and cared for and healed there. And it's going to be done with the gentleness, the kindness, the loving care of David. Now that doesn't mean that David's going to be resurrected. It's very clear in the book of Acts. He's not resurrected, and no man's gone to heaven except he who came down. Okay? But it's going to be the same kind of government. There's a type here. The same kind of care for the sheep has got to come. We can't be misused and abused, slaughtered, and ruined anymore. We have to be treated with love and kindness. doesn't mean we don't think yelled at, but... But overall, rather than abusing and forcing and pushing people, they need to be taught the truth and led to it so that they can dwell safely and have good food. So David is linked in here as well. And I, and I could give you 40 more scriptures on that or more from the Psalms and Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Now let's go back to Revelation 11. What time is it getting to be? We started a new... Hey, I've got a whole half hour left. Goody, goody. Hebrews 11. Hebrews? Maybe I better quit now. Man, where did that come from? Revelation... I turned to Hebrews 11. That's what this is. It's called a short circuit in a small mind. All right, Revelation 11 is what I meant. Now I'm there. All right, we saw that the, in the first verses that the temple of God and the altar uh, is important. The Gentiles forget about it for the time being. And now, let's pick it up again in verse 3. I will give power to my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred threescore days clothed in sackcloth. That means in humility. Not in vanity, not in pride, but in humility. I don't know whether they'll actually wear bags uh, or whether it's just symbolic here of humility. Could be both. I mean, you know, uh, Jeremiah had to cook his food with human dung and then he got a reprieve from God and he could use cow dung and he laid on his side and he got thrown down in the pit and it stunk there too. And uh, on and on and on it goes. Ezekiel had to run around, no, Isaiah had to run around naked. Uh, so, you know, God has had his servants do some mighty humiliating and humbling things. So perhaps this will be the case as well here. I don't know. Time will tell. But the point I want to make is there is a change here. The church has to be built first, 
the, the, the church has to be taken care of first. The church is the apple of God's eye, as he says in Zechariah 2. It has to be tended to. Then he will give power to the two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Now, what kind of power is given here? If any man will hurt them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. I don't want to cross them personally. <laughs> this, is, this is pretty dire. But we're talking about a world stage here, brethren. This thing won't be done in a corner. You see, the church, the latter temple, will be done in a corner. What are signs, wonders, and miracles for? Are they for you and me? No. Who read that yesterday? Was it John, or the day before, John Reitenbaugh? Signs and wonders and miracles are for unbelievers. Maybe I read it there in 1 Corinthians. Signs and wonders and miracles are for unbelievers. You and I don't need the gift of tongues. You and I don't need resurrections of the dead, necessarily. Unless God chooses to bless us with it at some point. We already believe. We have faith in the body of doctrine of God. He gives power after the temple is measured to preach to the world 1260 days. He have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they wish. Now you think about that. Where did this message come from? Doesn't that remind you of Egypt and Moses? Doesn't it remind you of Moses and Elijah in Malachi 4? These links are all in here for a purpose. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascended out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them. So they will go head to head with the beast power. And at that point, they will be overcome and killed. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, i.e. Jerusalem today, where also our Lord was crucified. People in the world don't understand this verse. They want to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and look at the holy place where the Lord Jesus laid his head. God doesn't say that's what that is today. He says it's Sodom and Egypt. Now, would you like to make a pilgrimage to Sodom? Maybe to Egypt? I have no interest whatsoever in Jerusalem, Palestine today. The place where the Lord was killed is Sodom and Egypt, spiritually speaking. Why go there? I am interested only in the Jerusalem of God. I'll go to South Africa or Australia to see those folk. Or anywhere on earth they happen to be. That's you. Spiritual Jerusalem. Not Sodom and Egypt. Now I do believe the worldwide has gone back and they are now in Sodom and Egypt. And they are dying there. But there are better things for you. They lay there three and a half days unburied and the whole world has a party. Because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. The 
church is small, scattered, and insignificant in the eyes of the world today, but once God gets his cadre of people, the remnant and the residue put together, and they are strong, and they fear not, and they work, and they get the temple built, God is then going to cause them to confront the world, as Micah 4 and 5 say. And the two witnesses will be their leaders. Well, the church will go to a place of safety at some point, but not before they also confront the world. Because Micah says he'll send seven chief shepherds and eight principal men, or however it's phrased, against the beast when the Assyrian comes in our land. So it's not just the two, brethren, it's more than that. We all have to show our faith and our trust and stand before the beast, Matthew 24. And some will be persecuted and martyred. And if, when he is passed down in Revelation 12, it says he comes after her. And he persecutes the woman. And it's going to get so bad that there will come a point in time where we have to flee for our very lives or we would all be killed. Then he turns and bites the remnant of her seed. Because she will go to her wilderness place and dwell in safety and comfort and security with the kind of leadership that David gave once he was converted. Stop chopping people's heads off. Now, where am I here? Well, let's summarize for a moment. We have Joshua and Zerubbabel as types of the end-time restorers of the temple, and later Zerubbabel has made a signet. We have the type of John the Baptist linked with Elijah in restoring proper worship in Israel and preparing a people for the Lord, and they will use the methods of David in loving, tender care of the sheep. We have Moses and Elijah as a type of the message to the church and the world, church first, world second, and we've not even touched on Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, there's a whole other section on the church, Jerusalem, the wall, everything. I'm not going to take the time to go there uh, because we don't have time to go there. And that could be another sermon or series of sermons, really, to talk about the rebuilding of the temple and uh, the wall. But I will, I will do it here at least because there's another link here, at least in principle. Uh, The temple was built first by Ezra. It says in Ezra 5.5.8 that they would build, rebuild the house of the great God and the wall around Jerusalem, the church. So this is a rich story that fits right in with Haggai and Zechariah, just like hand in glove with the other parallels that we've drawn today. Now here's where I wanted to pick it up. The house of God is established first, then the repairing of the wall. What does the wall represent, by and large? See, once the church has begun to be built, there were breaches in the wall. There were holes in the wall. Amos talked about all the women, or, yeah, the kine, or the cattle, women of Bashan, running out the breaches, the holes in the wall. Well, the temple was protected by what, brethren? True doctrine. True doctrine is the wall that hedged us in and kept us in the church of God. What happened? Great breaches and holes in the wall occurred when false doctrine was introduced, and people ran out all these holes. So once the temple is starting to be reestablished, what needs to be done? Build 
those holes back with true doctrine. All the holes that were made have to be patched. So that is what the church needs to be doing today, too, is repairing the wall, the true wall of doctrine that was lost, that is being cast aside. The temple has to be established first so that they can do the repairing of the doctrinal holes in the wall. And we have to stay within the protection of that wall of doctrine. That's why I think what John is saying about who was Herbert Armstrong is a very, very important concept that we need to get. That that body of doctrine was the wall that kept up the Worldwide Church of God together. And when that was broken, man, did it all come apart. Why does God tell us to return to the faith once delivered? Now, it is interesting that Joshua and Zerubbabel, if you read through Ezra and Nehemiah, were not the key figures in that building. Ezra and Nehemiah were. But but Joshua and Zerubbabel were there. They were on the scene. They were a part of what was going on. Now, that's an interesting thing to think in terms of the former temple that I described and the latter temple, the former temple being that of Herbert Armstrong, and there being men old enough to have seen both the former will be able to compare the latter So, Joshua and Zerubbabel were there, as Ezra and Nehemiah were the main ones building this, but they were not the key figures. And yet you go to the books of Haggai and Zechariah, and suddenly they are the key figures. Interesting. A change in leadership and building the latter temple. So what Ezra and Nehemiah did must be done again. And I think Ezra and Nehemiah, as well as Joshua and Zerubbabel, are again a type of the witnesses here. What Ezra and Nehemiah did has to be done again, that is, lead God's people out of Babylon and reestablish righteousness and true worship and building a spiritual temple with a correct wall around it. I don't know how strong the link is, but I think it's certainly there. I already mentioned here in my notes, it says Joshua and Zerubbabel witnessed the building of the temple and its destruction as more minor or background players. But then they lead in the construction of the latter temple, which is coming. All right, we've seen the pattern of events in the lives of Joshua and Zerubbabel, Moses and Elijah, Ezra and Nehemiah, David, John the Baptist. The works that they did have to be done again and microcosm, all at once at the end. So all these parallels, all these analogies, all these types in the Bible are coming together all at once, just before the day of the Lord. And I've already said this, but I want to say it again right here at the end for emphasis. Look for the message. Look for what God wants done. Trying to identify the messengers is not so important because once you find the messengers, I mean the message, then the messengers will come along the way. We're looking for God's word, for what Christ is doing. That was the vision, or that was the purpose of the transfiguration. 
don't look to Moses and Elijah, look to my son in whom I am well pleased. They will be bringing you the message from my son of what I want done in the end time to my church, to my bride, or to his bride, to Christ's bride. That's the message we're looking for. God has always worked through men and will again. This will be accomplished through two leaders working closely together with the remnant church, not just doing an independent work off by themselves, making the church right first. After thinking it through, I am not surprised. It shocked me when she said that. Nobody believes this, she said. But now I'm not surprised. For even when these two men appear on the scene, only a remnant will recognize them for what they are. Only a remnant will have recognized their job in the church. They will have been looking for the two witnesses to come and do signs and wonders against the world because they have not put these scriptures together to realize that the two olive trees, the candlesticks, the olive branches are the two witnesses and they are Joshua and Zerubbabel who are commissioned to build the church. So if we do not recognize this ahead of time, we will not be part of the latter temple because we will will simply have gone over our heads because we're looking for the wrong thing first. That's why it is so critical that we understand and that we know what to look for. Look for the right message in the rebuilding of the church first. Be a part of it. Escape with it. And when the two witnesses turn to the world, you'll be in a safe place. But those who do not recognize it until then will find themselves in the middle of the tribulation or the beginning of it. The first verses of Revelation 11 deal with the church first before the attention ever turns to the world and the Gentiles in it. Again, miracles and great wonders are signs to unbelievers, not believers. The message of Christ is the sign to believers. We must be spiritually alert, awake, aware, and prepared, lest we miss the signs. So the church first, then the world, in that order. 